when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neelai Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. This week's Decoder episode is coming to you a day early, because today is Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, or WWDC, if you're really in it and you just call it DubDub. It's one of the biggest events of the year for Apple, which is one of the most important companies in the world. In fact, Apple is the most valuable company in the world. It just posted $18 billion of net profit in its first quarter. That's the most quarterly profit of any public company in history. So as we go into another huge Apple event, I wanted to have Verge labor reporter Zoe Schiffer on the show to talk about something else that's happening inside Apple, a brewing push by its retail employees to unionize store by store because they're unhappy with their pay and working conditions. If you're a Decoder listener, you probably remember Zoe. She was on the show last year to talk about how Slack was changing Apple's workplace culture. Slack had enabled all of Apple's employees to talk to each other, and they organized and pushed back against some of Apple's stricter rules, particularly around returning to the office. As Zoe dove deeper into her reporting on Apple's workplace, she learned about the specific challenges facing Apple Store employees. They struggled with COVID, rude customers, mental health issues, unhappiness with wages, and a lack of advancement. A piece she wrote about those problems a few months ago was widely shared among those employees who came to see that they had some common problems and began organizing. Workers at an Apple store in Atlanta became the first to file for unionization in April 2022. Apple stores in Towson, Maryland, and New York City's Grand Central Station soon followed. The Atlanta store was supposed to hold a vote on whether or not to unionize last Thursday on June 2nd, but they suspended it. Those other stores are expected to vote in the coming weeks. This organizing follows a trend for other frontline employees at other big companies, some tech, some not. Famously, Amazon warehouse employees have involved in a very public, drawn-out fight to unionize. In May, one New York warehouse voted to unionize, while another did not. Starbucks appears to be unionizing at a very fast rate. A hundred Starbucks locations have already voted to unionize. And some Alphabet employees are already part of what's called a solidarity union, which is a slightly different kind of union that you'll hear Zoe and I talk about. I wanted to understand what's driving this trend at Apple and beyond, what employees are upset about, what they aspire to achieve by organizing, how the fight's going, and what might happen next. And I'm particularly interested in how opaque the actual mechanisms of unions and organizing are, because I don't think many people understand the specific steps it takes to start a union, the interests of the big national unions themselves, and how a union at something like an Apple store might wield its collective power effectively once it's in place. So Zoe and I talked a lot about the basics in order to understand the specifics. Zoe is really well-sourced on this. She has a truly inside look at unionization efforts across the country. So she helped me understand how this all works and what it might mean. One note, I disclosed this in the conversation, but the Virgin Vox Media are unionized. I am obviously management and Zoe's in our union. That didn't have any bearing on our conversation, but as you all know, I love a disclosure, so there it is. Okay, Zoe Schiffer on unionization at Apple stores and beyond. Here we go.
Zoe Schiffer, your labor reporter here at The Verge. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks so much for having me. You are our very first repeat guest. It's an it's an honor. It really is an honor, Neil. Thank you. <laughs> And we're actually uh, talking largely about the same company we were talking about the last time you were here. The last time you were here, we were talking about Apple and return to work and how that had upset a number of employees who were being asked to return to the spaceship campus, particularly in various engineering departments. Over the last year, I would say that conversation has shifted. So Apple has said they're going to return to work and they've walked it back as COVID has come and gone. And a lot of the energy in the Apple employee base has really moved to Apple retail and retail workers saying they want to be treated better and in many cases thinking about unionizing. Why do you think that shift has happened? I mean, in part, I think retail workers were inspired by what they were seeing at corporate. They were like, wow, people at corporate are fighting for their right to work from home. We obviously never get to work from home. We're paid far less than they are. Like We should be organizing as well. So one of the most interesting things about Apple is that it has a lot of employees, and I think most people think of Apple employees as engineers and designers and executives who get on stage uh, at keynote events, but a huge percent of their employees actually work in the stores, work in retail. The last number I have here from the Washington Post says Apple retail is 65,000 people, which is just a massive number of people to work at any company. Do they feel... Like they're integrated into Apple proper? Do they feel like they're part of the whole show or do they feel separate? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I would say more than most retail jobs, Apple does an enormous amount of work to make Apple retail employees really feel like they're part of the overall Apple mission. Every single shift starts out with this morning meeting. It's called the download meeting um, where they read the Apple Credo, which is this like very elevated text about how the mission is to like empower the whole world. And we turn dreamers into doers and people will like cry when they're reading it. Like it's a big thing. And I think retail employees really do feel like they believe in the mission. They believe in Apple proper. And it's borne out by the fact that they stay at the retail job for far longer than your average retail employee. There are people who've been at Apple retail for like 10, 15 years. Is there advancement in Apple retail? Can you make a lot of money working at the stores or do you transition into corporate in some way? You get an annual raise. This is like one of the core issues that people are upset about because you can start out people... Um, used to start out at like $17, $18, $19 an hour. And then every year you'd get like a 30 cent raise, a 40 cent raise. And so with rising inflation, like it just wasn't keeping up with the cost of living in a lot of major cities. And then in terms of career advancement, there's obviously, you know, store lead positions in the Apple retail stores. Again, these are not like highly paid. They're still hourly jobs. And then you can do career experiences. So basically, Apple corporate offers the opportunity for retail workers to work a corporate job but get paid their same retail salary. And the idea is that you're going to try out what it's like to work on a corporate team. And eventually you could be in the running to like get that corporate job. In reality, it's very rare for employees to move from retail to corporate. Unfortunately, the company doesn't like release numbers on how many people actually advance. But I just know anecdotally from talking to a lot of people, it's it feels like a position that's kind of like dangled out in front of them, like a little carrot always. And it's really hard to actually make that transition. You mentioned people stay there forever. They stay there forever out of loyalty to Apple, even though they're not advancing or getting raises. Are they staying there because it's the best job in the mall? What would make you stay somewhere for 10 years if there's a cap on your advancement? I mean, I think the reality is that it still is a better retail job than most retail jobs. It pays about $4 an hour more than other retail positions. And I think what happens, this is just my sense from, again, chatting with a lot of retail employees over the past couple of years, is that people come in and they're comparing Apple retail to their last retail job, and it's significantly better. But then when they're there for a long time, they start to compare themselves to Apple corporate and it feels significantly worse. So they're kind of stuck in this position where it doesn't feel like you want to transition to another retail job that's going to pay you a little less and not be as good of an environment, but you really don't know if and when you'll ever get to advance beyond your current retail position. One of the things that has obviously changed over the course of Apple Retail's existence is the primacy of the store and the place it occupied in the Apple ecosystem. So Steve Jobs famously starts the stores, Everyone tells him they're going to be a failure and he's going to destroy the company because he's opened a store in the mall. They turn out to be 
a huge success for Apple. They are part of the brand's revitalization under Jobs. He wants people to have a good experience with computers. The you know the original stores had boxed software in them where you could buy apps for your Mac <laughs> and learn how to edit on an iMovie. Over the years, right, there have been many changes to what the store represents for Apple. There have been many leaders of the store. There have been some executives who did a horrible job. There was Angela Ahrens who wanted to make them like community cafes or something. Now they have Deirdre O'Brien who was the head of HR. Is there a sense of what the stores are supposed to do for Apple? Because it feels like there have been many changes about the importance of the store, but now they have a lot of them and they're architecturally significant, but it's not like Apple needs help getting the word out or it's hard to buy an iPhone anywhere you are in the world. What are the stores for? That's a really interesting question. I feel like if you talk to retail workers, they feel like we are the conduit between corporate and the customer. People want to buy an iPhone and they're going to want to buy an iPhone kind of regardless of whether the stores exist or not. But they might not have a personal relationship with Apple or feel like if they're an older person who doesn't know how to work certain technology, that the company cares enough to like walk them through how to set up their phone or computer. And the retail workers, that's really their position along with Apple Care employees. And so I think they feel like we are your brand ambassadors. Everyone knows the brand, but if you really want people to love the brand, then we're the people that make that happen. So that seems like a, a pretty important role for those folks. It seems like Apple wants them to buy into the larger mission. Why are they unhappy? Yeah. So again, I think that this is an issue of when you look from the outside, you're comparing Apple retail workers to other retail workers and you're saying you're paid more, the environment's a little bit better, like you get stock, what's the issue? But Apple retail workers, because they've really bought into this mission and Apple has made such a point of like having them watch all of the large Apple events, having an executive speak directly to them, like really galvanizing them about the Apple mission, that they start to compare themselves to Apple corporate. And they're saying, okay, you are the most profitable company in the world. You've had the best quarter of any company ever in terms of revenue. Why are we not seeing any of that? Like, why are you bringing me into the mission and telling me that I'm part of this, but then I'm not even paid a fraction of what a corporate employee makes? And I'm assuming that Apple's response to that is our corporate employees are what have more skills. They design the camera and the iPhone. There are advertising people. Is there a response? Like, that would be what my guess would be, that people get paid differently based on their skills. Yeah. But is that actually what they're saying or is that? No, because Apple would never say that. They would never, I don't think, say like, yeah, corporate employees are, you know, have higher educational degrees. and Because that might not even be accurate necessarily, although on the whole, I'm sure there are reasons why those people are paid more. But I think that they're saying, look, we're listening to you. We want to make the environment a little bit better. Like, we'll make more opportunities for you to advance at the company. But the subtext, of course, is, well, I guess just to back up, retail employees are not asking to get paid what corporate employees get paid. They're asking for $26 an hour for the most part. And that's relatively a small raise in their minds when you look at what Apple is making quarter over quarter. What else are these unions asking for in addition to higher pay? What, what else are they unhappy about? There are a few different reasons, but one of the big ones that has become particularly important over the past couple of years is just the mental health strain of the work. I think part of the problem with Apple, like indoctrinating people into the company ethos so effectively is that when the workload gets really intense or customers are really shitty to employees or corporate puts out some mandate about like how fast people should be fixing the iPhone and it's really hard to keep up with, people feel like it's really hard to step away and their voices aren't heard. Like if you have a problem with any of these things and you talk to your store leader, oftentimes it doesn't go anywhere. And so people will email Tim Cook and they won't hear back and they'll email Deirdre O'Brien and they won't hear back and they feel like they're drowning a little bit. And we talked about this in an article that I wrote, I think it came out in January and not to make this like about my reporting, but I do think that piece kind of sparked a conversation from what I've heard from a lot of different people that people kind of looked at this piece, which centered on um, one employee who died by suicide after being bullied by a manager for years. And friends of his really felt like the death was unfortunately related to the mental health strain of his work at Apple. And they said like, wow, I've been struggling with this and I didn't know that anyone else was. 
one of the themes that keeps coming up in this conversation is people feel really alone and then they realize that other people have the same problems and that leads to a sense of solidarity and then potentially leads to unions. Why do you think that happens so often that people don't recognize that other people in different stores or even the same store are having the same experiences? I mean, I think that when it's happening to you and you're trying to talk to a manager to corporate about it and the message you're getting is like, okay, well, if you need to step away, you can, but I need you to come back next week and be like on your A game, then you're kind of getting this subtle nod that like the problem is you. And I think most companies are pretty effective at like keeping employees pretty siloed, particularly in retail. I mean, this is, we've had this conversation before, but like why Slack is such an effective organizing tool, because suddenly you can bring people together in the same room who all have the same problem with the same manager, the same policy or what have you. And so I think when, you know, the article came out or an, an article comes out and people read it, it's kind of the first time that they feel like they're not the only one. Let's put this in contrast to some other relevant examples. Amazon is also facing unionization efforts at its warehouses. It feels like it's kind of easier to understand the Amazon warehouse unionization story. Like, they're warehouse workers, a classically unionized subset of workers in America. They have arduous working conditions. We have heard about, you know, the robots managing the workers in difficult ways. There's a very controversial anecdote about drivers peeing in bottles that Amazon would refute, and then the workers would tell you it's true. But Amazon itself, right, provides educational benefits. It really wants warehouse workers to graduate into corporate, or at least it says it does. It's very loud about those pathways. Like, compare and contrast that to Apple's relationship to its frontline workers. Yeah. Can we actually bring in another example, too? Because I think it's really interesting to look at Starbucks, Amazon, and Apple. And when we look at Starbucks and Amazon, they both have these acute issues that workers are facing. At Starbucks, it's that people are severely understaffed and overworked. And at Amazon, it's the labor conditions that you're talking about. Apple doesn't have either of those things. And when we look at the success of the Starbucks campaign versus the Amazon campaign, we can see very clearly that I think in December, two stores in Buffalo, two Starbucks locations announced that they were filing for a union election. And within six weeks, 20 other stores filed for union elections. And I think now we're at like 250 stores across the country. So that's what we mean when we say like there was a big unionizing push that kind of ignited the whole country of Starbucks workers. At Amazon, there was one successful labor union on Staten Island. And after that, I think a month later, we had one other union say they were going to file and then they withdrew the petition. That was it. And the reasons for that, I think, are varied. But one of them is that Starbucks workers, and the New York Times wrote a good piece on this, but they work close together. They have a lot of time where they're just sitting around with colleagues and a manager is not present. Amazon workers are very isolated. They're not always working with the same people. It's like hard to sit around and chat about the reasons for unionizing in the first place. Apple workers are somewhere in between there. They don't have the acute labor issues, again, although many would tell you that they are overworked, the stress is really intense, and they are underpaid. But they're on the floor. There's always a store leader present. They're not necessarily sitting around, like, chatting about how to improve their working conditions. And what we've seen so far is that three stores announced that they were unionizing with three separate unions. One of them has already withdrawn their petition And it's unclear whether the other two will be successful, which isn't to say, like, I don't want to be a downer about this, but I just think we're at a point where we really don't know whether Apple is going to go the route of Amazon in this and it's going to be a slower slog that might not go anywhere or whether it's going to be more of a Starbucks. Let's do a little unionizing 101 because you brought up a bunch of terms there and a bunch of process that I think most people are not familiar with. And you mentioned that there are three separate unions. So... The formation of a union is actually a somewhat complex process. So let's say you're an employee at a random Apple store. How would you begin the process of unionizing? Yeah, I'm going to try and get this right because it is really complicated and I feel like I have to do a refresher every time I write a story. But basically, if you're an Apple retail worker, you start chatting with colleagues about improving your working conditions. And some union organizers would tell you at that point you have a union. But in Apple corporate's eyes, you most certainly do not have a union. So what you need to do is get 30% of the people who work in your store and are eligible to vote to sign cards, basically a petition, saying that they would vote for a union. And at that point, you can file paperwork with the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, and say that you intend to have a union vote. 
If you have 30%, the NLRB will say, okay, you can come. You'll schedule a vote either in person or you can be through the mail sometimes. And then if the majority of people who are eligible to vote, vote in favor of the union, you have a union. And at that point, you have to decide on a contract and the company has to come to the table and negotiate with you. That's the power of the union. But it can take years for a contract to actually be ratified. I feel like I'm very much obligated to disclose right now that I am management and so is in the Vox Media Union and we, uh, management, I would, of which I have no part, is currently negotiating a new contract with your union. There's yes. your disclosure. Zoe and I, uh, <laughs> I don't think you have anything to do with it, but um, we are on opposite sides of the table in that respect. Although here at the decoder table, I feel like we're, we're definitely a team. Um, <laughs> would you say we're a family, Neil? I would not at this moment in time. Good, good. I have a family. I like my family very much. <laughs> Anyhow, so you mentioned a contract. This is a key sticking point in the formation of a union and what you get out of a company. So you said they had to negotiate a contract. What do those contracts look like at some of these unions? What do they cover? It totally depends. It covers anything that the company and the workers decide on the contract covering. But oftentimes it's things like minimum pay, vacation policy, maternity leave, sick leave, things like that. Basically, what is the floor for the basic working conditions when people come into this company and work for it? I brought that up very specifically because there's another union at Alphabet called the Alphabet Workers Union that organized itself into a union but did not negotiate a contract with Alphabet. Yes. So that is what we call a solidarity union. And when I said at the beginning that, like, technically speaking, when employees come together and advocate for better conditions, that is a union. That's true. Like, historically speaking, going before the NLRB and voting for a union is like a relatively new phenomenon. And unions existed before that. And they were just people coming together. That said, when you have corporate companies that have a lot of money and a lot of power, they might not take you as seriously if you don't have a contract in hand. And I will say, like, the Alphabet Workers Union has been effective. They've filed unfair labor practice charges. Like, they have done some of the things that we would expect a typical union to do. But in terms of those large-scale policies that change the working conditions for everyone, I don't know if we've seen that yet. Just in the context of this as a business podcast, the basics are pretty simple, right? You get together, you file with the NLRB, you say, we're a unit then because you're a unit, you have leverage to negotiate all together with a company around things like pay and benefits. Yeah. The more workers you have in the union, the more power you have. Because really, at this point, when we've gutted a lot of the labor legislation in this country, what you have is workers coming together and saying, we will strike if you don't give us what we want and we'll stop working. And if you don't have a lot of people doing that, a lot of your power has been taken away. So the, when the Alphabet Workers Union formed, is there a reason they went the other way and didn't form a unit that could negotiate for a contract or threaten a strike? The reason that they give is that they wanted contractors to be part of the union. And because contractors are categorized differently at the corporate level than corporate employees, they cannot be in the same union as corporate employees if you're going to go before the NLRB and vote in that regard. They would be part of different bargaining unions, essentially. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk about why different stores could join different unions. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio, designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Now, back to the debate. Designers, you can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. If no code's your thing or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs, Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers, search Wix Studio and find out for yourself. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. 
If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back with Zoe Schiffer. The other thing that seems very interesting to me, and it came up in both the Starbucks and the Amazon example, is it's warehouse by warehouse at Amazon. So every warehouse has its own union. It's coffee shop by coffee shop for Starbucks, and it's store by store for Apple. Is there a reason it's not all of the coffee shops or all of the Apple stores, but it's individual stores as units? Yeah, I mean, the basic reason is that by design, these companies do not give workers at different locations an ability to talk to one another very easily. It very much feels like if you work at an Apple store in Austin, Texas, you work at that store. You don't have a lot of connection with the Grand Central Union Apple workers. And in a practical sense, this means that while corporate employees have a Slack that they can talk to any other corporate employee on, retail workers have a Slack where they can talk to their store on. And when it was first rolled out, I do believe there was more of an ability to talk between stores, but that was taken away. But there's no legal reason that it has to be store by store or warehouse by warehouse. No, you could organize. I mean, if you could do it, you could organize all of the stores at once under one major union because they're all categorized. Like all of those workers are categorized the same way. And when we look at Starbucks, like all of the Starbucks stores, I believe, are um, organizing under Workers United. So Workers United is a labor union, mm-hmm. and then they go to a store and they say, you should organize, and they bring workers into the fold and create a new union. Like, how does that work? Yeah. If you said that to Workers United, they would be like, absolutely not. It's the workers. They come to us, the workers find us, and they want to unionize, and we merely, like, assist them with the process. I think that there's some debate, like, <laughs> where the um, where it comes <laughs> from, because it's definitely true that unions will approach workers, particularly after one store has already announced, then you'll see a lot of outreach from unions saying like, hey, did you look at what was happening at the store in New York? Do you also want to unionize? And I think one thing that has been coming up and organizing in the tech industry in particular is that it is kind of a badge of honor to be the national union that is organizing a very famous tech company. And so there is kind of this personal stake that a lot of unions have to be the one organizing Apple, to be the one organizing Amazon. What's the relationship between the union at an individual store and the national union? How does that relationship play out? Basically, your store will have workers who come together and say they want to unionize, and then the national union will have organizers who work with that particular store to help you unionize. So you'll have a union rep from the national union who's kind of like assigned to your store and will help you along the way with your process. They'll help with the union campaign. They'll meet with you and explain like you know how to combat... Um, anti-union talking points from corporate, like they're professional organizers. And so they'll teach people who have not professionally organized before, like how to do it. Do they provide any other services? Are there, is it, we're going to teach you how to do it and walk away? Or are they in it with you? Or are there lawyers? I'm just, I ask that because there's always lawyers. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's a good question. No, they're in it with you. And there are lawyers involved, like, you know, with the Communication Workers of America, one of the unions that's organizing Apple workers has already filed unfair labor practice charges on behalf of two stores in the United States saying that some of the anti-union moves that Apple has been making are illegal. And so in that regard, like they're filing paperwork, they have lawyers involved, they're working with people when they hear workers say like, hey, my manager said that if we unionize, my benefits will be taken away. It's usually the CWA rep who's like, that's highly illegal. Let's file something right now and let's like get this fight moving forward. And then very famously, companies tell employees like, you're going to have to pay dues. It's going to come out of your paycheck. I'm assuming the dues are what pays for the lawyers and the national unions. Yeah. And this is the talking point that corporate will often make, which is like, 
the union is a business. If if more people join it, they get paid more. Like you should be very wary of that, which I think that, you know, in reality, they, they are doing a job for you. Like there's a reason that union dues exist. It's like what makes the union have teeth in a lot of ways. But it is true that, yeah, you're paying the union organizers. It is, it is often felt to me like a bunch of people getting together to hire a lawyer, like like in a very abstract way. You're hiring some lawyers to negotiate a contract for you. It like makes sense to me in that in that way. The question that I have about the various unions fighting it out to be the ones that organize the tech industry. You mentioned Apple has three of them competing for its stores. Are those unions different? Do they compete? That's another thing that seems very overlooked to me, that you have these multiple national unions, and you should be able to measure their effectiveness or their cost structures or their due schedules. And like, I, you know, as I look around for that kind of information, it's actually quite hard to find a direct comparison of these organizations the way that you might compare, I don't know, streaming services or something. Yeah, I think it is honestly somewhat random which national union the stores end up going with because they don't have a good way to compare the unions. When you talk to people in Atlanta who were the ones who chose to go with CWA, they did not say we chose them because of their long history in the comms industry. They said, we looked at Amazon workers who were unionizing. We Googled union. They were the first one that came up and we like submitted a little (laughs) form. So I think in that regard, it does feel a little more random than you might expect. There is not a good way for workers to compare one union to another. It's basically like, have you talked to the union reps at these different places? Do they have a history of organizing people in your field? And do you have a good feeling about them maintaining the fact that you as the worker have the power, not you as the national union? That said, I think it is somewhat random which national union the workers end up going with. And we've already seen at Apple that the store in Maryland has filed a petition to unionize with the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. But we do know just from chatting with employees in the store that even after that announcement came out, like CWA reps were chatting with workers and, and there was a conversation around whether they should stick with the union that they'd filed with or whether they should move over to CWA. And I think, like, strategically speaking, it's not unheard of for one industry to have workers who are unionized with um, different national unions. Like the flight industry is a good example of this. I think there's like two unions that represent specifically flight attendants at American Airlines and such, but it certainly can weaken the power that you have when Apple is negotiating with like three different unions at three different stores, smaller group of employees at each one of them versus like all of the employees coming together and really pushing for the same set of demands. It just occurs to me that there's no, if you're the average store employee, you have no way to measure or even look up how effective is CWA versus the International Machinist Union, right? If CWA is coming and saying we might just switch. Are you saying that we need a Yelp for unions? Because I'm hearing a business idea. I'm not not saying it. Right? Like, it's hard to know until you're in it and then no information comes out. But I think I think you're putting too much emphasis on the national unions. Like they are certainly helpful. But the Starbucks workers, like one of the things that you read about again and again is that the push is coming from workers. It's not coming from Workers United, the union. Of course, in practice, like we have seen these fights play out before when Amazon workers in Bessemer lost the union vote. You had Jane McElvey, a really famous organizer, write like a scathing article in the nation about how RWDSU had really fucked up the union campaign. And she had all of these reasons that basically it was their fault that Bessemer hadn't been successful. And so I do think it's like obviously important which union you decide to go with, but ultimately like workers being very motivated to organize their workforce is what's going to make this happen or not. Do you think there's any connection to the other industries that these unions have taken hold in. So CWA is very familiar to me because they, Communications Workers of America, largely have unionized Verizon and AT&T down to their retail stores, a lot of their line workers. I think most decoder listeners know how I feel about Verizon and AT&T as corporate entities, but I would not say that on the whole, those workers feel respected or well taken care of, even though they have this long history of a union. And I wonder, does that come through hey, this specific union has this long history negotiating against AT&T or this long history negotiating against Verizon, and I can look at that history and maybe 
pull out some themes that would apply to me here? Or is this all kind of de novo? It's all happening for the first time. I mean, one, just to like push back a little bit on something you said, I don't think the fact that like AT&T workers don't feel respected is like a reason that CWA isn't an effective union. Like we don't know how much worse their lives would be if there was no union. So I don't know if that's a fair comparison. But yeah, I mean, to be fully frank, at least in my conversations with retail workers, I have not heard them say like we chose CWA specifically because they have a very long history of unionizing workers in our industry. And these are the reasons we think they'll be successful. I think that CWA certainly uses those talking points when they're talking to workers, because one of the things that corporations will say, and Apple said this very quickly, is the union doesn't understand our business. They don't understand your day-to-day work and they don't understand Apple. And that's why they're going to come in and they're going to slow us down and they're going to get in between us. So for a union to actually have some history, at least in the field that you're in, is important. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So there are two other unions inside of Apple. CWA is one. What are the other two stores? Who have they gone with? Um, So the New York store... New York Grand Central Terminal Store is with Workers United, which is the one that's organizing Starbucks workers. And then the store in Maryland is organizing with the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. And are those three unions collaborating? Do they talk to each other? Are they ferociously competitive? How does that go? Hmm. How do I say this? There's no doubt that they're competing um, with each other in the sense that there's a big push to not just organize the one store where workers have filed for an election, but to then like get out and talk to workers at as many stores as possible so that when and if this starts to pick up momentum, you are the union that it's picking up momentum with. That said, when you talk to people at the different unions, the national unions, they're not saying like, screw that other union, we hate them and they're bad at their jobs. They're saying like, no, they're really great. Of course, it's totally fine to have three separate unions, like no big deal. We're working together in the sense that like when we see, you know, that violent unfair labor practice charge, it helps our unfair labor practice charge. Like they are, I think, a little more supportive in how they talk about it. So that's kind of the process here, right? You identify one of these unions using however much information you might have, you organize your group, you tell the government that you are a group, you get the official stamp of approval, you get to negotiate a contract, then you have a contract. Once you have that worker power and you've got that unit and you're, you've got your contract, how do you make sure that power is used effectively? That seems like a very hard thing to, to learn about. I'm curious if you have any insight. Yeah, I mean, so in addition to helping employees organize, the national union is a big part of helping them wield their power effectively once they actually have a contract in place. They assist in like the process of going back and forth with the company to negotiate on what the contract says. And then when it's up for renegotiation, they're really part of that process too. So I think that for employees, they kind of have the expertise on like what needs to change at their specific workplace. And oftentimes the national union will have the expertise on like how to go about implementing that change. So like my joke with the show is that it's always it's about org charts and trade offs like any two comparably organized groups of people will have different strengths and weaknesses like sports teams or I don't know, oil companies, like everyone's not all the same. Groups of people are not all the same. Is there a framework that people can use or is there like a commonly accepted measure of this structure is effective at achieving these goals and that structure is effective at achieving these goals or is it kind of novel every time? I mean, I think we know enough to say that like if you're looking at a solidarity union versus a union that has gone before the NLRB and gotten a vote and has a contract in place like the NLRB ratified union is, I would say, more effective. They can push for change um, in a way that a solidarity union just can't. On a legal level, we also know that unions in right-to-work states are markedly less effective than unions in states where people are obligated to pay dues, whether or not they're part of the union. So things like that really do matter. I think when you're just talking about, like, if I want to go with OPEIU, which is the union that organized Kickstarter, or if I want to go with CWA, like, do I have a way to see which of those would be more effective? And I don't think you do, because honestly, even just looking at the working conditions of employees, like the companies themselves are so different and the power of the union might be really affected by that. And so it's hard to look and say, well, those people have more benefits. So I'm going to go with that national union because it may or may not be because of the national union in the first place. 
it strikes me that if you, I don't know, start a t-shirt store online, there's like infinity how to manage resources available for you. But if you're an Apple store employee and you win your contract or you get your unit and now it's time to like operate your union, the resources seem like you're nationally, like, where do you learn how to do that? From the national union. I mean, that's really what it's for. The union is supposed to be the workers themselves, but the people teaching you how to effectively wield your union power, that's where the national union comes in. It just seems like a weird media black hole, like in an information environment where there's infinity resources for anything you can think of, for that to be like the single source of expertise once you're in it. Are there are there issues with that? Is that working well? How, how do you think it's going? I mean, there are certainly issues with it. Like there are legitimate criticisms of national unions. There's a lot of bizarre infighting that takes place at unions. Like I think there is a level of secrecy that kind of like envelops these organizations that can be kind of a problem because when you get inside, you don't realize um, or you didn't realize prior to joining like how slow and bureaucratic they can be. Like they are bureaucratic organizations also. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I don't think they're like a solve for everything. And I do think the lack of information about how they function is an issue. And it's a more complicated problem than just like David and Goliath are the unions being perfect and corporations being evil. Like, I think, you know, they are also businesses and some of them have better and worse organizers at them and people who are more and less dedicated to the worker cause. Like, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, I, just think, I think it's particularly fascinating in this moment where there is such a push towards unions across every industry that, I don't know, I literally follow like TikTok accounts about how to be a better manager. And it's like, you see the amount of emphasis on that skill development, which in some ways I'm sure is transferable, but I don't think anybody knows how to be a good manager until they do it. And I'm assuming no one knows how to run an effective union inside any company in any size until they start doing it. But you don't have the scaffolding underneath it, except for the national union, which you can't compare. Like it's, that just seems odd to me. Yeah, I mean, we can start a Twitter account where we talk about the effective <laughs> ways to run a union. No, I, yeah, I I hear you. I mean, I think that it's a little simplistic. Like, there are, if you were looking for specific ways to organize a large-scale protest, I don't know if you'd be able to, like, look online and really understand that. Like, I think at a certain level, grassroots organizing is always going to be kind of like an oral history project where you're talking to people who've done it before and then you're going out and doing it yourself. But that said, like, I think we do kind of have an oversimplified conversation in this space where one side is good and one side is bad and one side is for the worker and the other side's against. And there is a level of that that has truth to it. Like the corporation is always going to be more concerned with its bottom line. And the union, I think, will be more concerned about like worker welfare. But it's also true that the union's bottom line is tied to worker welfare. How far away from a contract do you think any of these stores are with Apple? Years. Years. Honestly. Yeah, I mean, because just to get a little more in the weeds on process, like you file for a union election, you hold the vote. The vote can be appealed. Like we've seen this with Amazon, uh, with the Bessemer election. Like there's, I, I don't even know how much time has passed between when they filed for an election and where we're at now, where the vote was defeated again. But like, There's so many steps and opportunities for both sides to appeal just the election part that to actually sit down at the table and negotiate a contract, which in and of itself can take many, many months. We're way far out from that. One of the pieces of the puzzle for Amazon is turnover in the warehouses. So even between the time of the first election and now the second election at Bessemer, some huge number of employees have churned out of that warehouse and don't work there anymore. Some of the employees have been interviewed throughout that whole process of, look, I'm only here for a minute. I don't care. I'm just like moving on. You mentioned in the beginning, Apple Store employees tend to stay for a long time. Mm-hmm. Do you think that they're committed to this years long process or is that, are they going to have a similar turnover issue? Yeah. I, I mean, there is still not insignificant turnover because it's a retail job and you have the people who are working it while they're in college and are kind of like actively moving on to something else. So I don't think they're going to have the issue with turnover that Bessemer had in the sense that like by the time you actually get to a vote, there's like the core organizers are gone or a lot of them are gone. But I think that we have yet to see whether there will be enough of the core people there to kind of push this through and whether the new people coming in are going to identify the same problems or the opportunity for like improvement in their work that the organizers currently do. 
We need to take another break, but when we come back, we discuss what Apple Store employees would want out of a union contract. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? And the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or find it wherever you listen. We're back. I think it's important to talk about what the store employees are actually asking for. One thing you mentioned sort of at the top of the show was that the key ask from Apple is $26 an hour. 26 to if 28, Apple, just to, yeah, be specific. 26 to 28. If Apple just gives them 26 to $28 an hour and then, you know, some college kids leave and some new people come in, does that end this? It's not their only ask. I don't know. I think we're, we're still total, and I really want to stress this, like we are not at the point that Starbucks is at where it's like this union has like taken storm and a lot of stores are organizing. Like we are still very much at the very beginning of this. And I think we have yet to see, will this organizing effort go away completely or will it really turn into like a lasting movement? And I don't say that to be negative, but we just, the momentum isn't quite there yet in my mind to make it a sure thing. That said, it's not just that they're organizing about pay. So they do want more pay to keep up with the cost of living in major cities. They want better career development opportunities. So kind of going back to that career experience, like they want the promise that you could move up at Apple, that you could eventually join corporate to be realized a little more. And they want a bigger say in COVID-19 safety measures. And that point is interesting because Apple was really ahead of the curve and like closing down stores really early on in the pandemic. I think it was the first brick and mortar locations to do so. But store managers at Apple have an enormous amount of power and they're really in charge of keeping the net promoter score, how Apple kind of measures how good a store is performing, high. And so even though Apple corporate can make really great COVID policies saying like, everyone can work from home and still get paid, we need masking in the stores, people should stay home if they're sick, in reality, we saw store managers pressuring people to come in even when they had reported COVID-19 symptoms. When you say they want to say in COVID-19 procedures, they want to be on a committee, they want to veto, how does that play out? They haven't specified. They wrote an open letter and kind of like laid out their asks, but we're still at the point where the asks are very high level. Like when we talk about career development opportunities, they haven't gotten very nitty gritty on what that actually means. And when we talk about COVID-19 safety measures, I think what they know what they don't want, which is like different mandates that change all the time and a different experience from what corporate is saying should happen versus what your store manager is saying should happen. Like they, as someone on the ground in the retail store, want a voice and they want to say, I'm uncomfortable coming into the store if there's no masking and have corporate actually listen to them. That would all get negotiated in a contract, which is years from now. So I'm just, I'm just making that, and this is a very optimistic connection. <laughs> COVID concerns are very of the moment. Years from now, ideally, they're not so much of a concern. Is that the sort of thing that fades away as you go into the contract process? Or is it the sort of thing that actually galvanizes them all the way through? I don't know if safety measures would be something that would galvanize them all the way through. Because I, again, like, that is something that is very of the moment. And it's something that's of the moment, particularly for employees who worked through the pandemic. People coming in who just see, like, 
you know, a healthy functioning store and there's no like big risk of getting COVID. I don't know if they're going to have the same commitment to like, we really need to sort this out before the next pandemic hits. It's really a function of like the particular confusion that happened early on in the pandemic was like, are we going to have a job after this? How long is this going to last? What, like how at risk am I when I'm in the store? When the organizers try to set up the union, what is the argument that they make to workers? What is the best pro-union argument that they have? The kind of high-level one that you hear again and again is you should have a bigger say in your workplace. And basically the idea is regardless of what you want to accomplish, you're more likely to accomplish it if many of you come together and push for change. So whether that's more pay or more benefits or more sick leave, it's going to happen. You'll be able to kind of design the workplace you want more effectively if you have a union. So what's particularly notable about all of this is that you're saying it's at this very early stage, but I think Apple can see what is happening with Starbucks. They would prefer it not to happen. They're reacting in a much louder way than you would expect with three stores that aren't very close to the finish line. Totally. But it's worth pointing out, and I feel like I've been a little bit negative on this podcast. I'm just trying to, like, temper my responses. But there (laughs) are so many stores, like, almost every single one that I've talked to, and I talked to many, many of them across the country, who are at least having conversations about organizing. And so I think Apple is looking and they're saying, okay, we don't know whether this is going to like light a fire where every store organizes like Starbucks, but we don't want the momentum to get there. Like we want to kind of quash it while it's here and it's just three stores. And I think it's not clear which of those directions um, it's going to go in right now. What has Apple tried to do to quash this movement? So at first, Apple was not coming out and saying whether or not it supported the union. I think we all knew that it didn't support the union because Apple functions with like such tight control on all aspects of the business that to like cede that control to workers didn't seem like something they would want. But they were saying things like we really value retail employees. They were giving these very like measured responses and articles that were coming out about it. Basically, we really value retail employees and we think like they have a good environment, more or less. Then something interesting happened. I was leaked a document that looked like a very early stage anti-union talking points just in that it was highlighting all of the benefits that Apple retail workers already have. And this is something we see a lot of times in an early union campaign. Corporate will put out a doc saying like, look, you already get paid well, we're committed to diversity and inclusion, et cetera. Apple did that. When I got the document, I showed it to another source who I trust and just said like, hey, is this legit? And they were like, no way. Look at the fonts on that. All of the fonts are different from like the headers (laughs) to the body. Apple would never do that. But it turned out that was actually a real document. Like the company was wanting store managers to post this in break rooms and kind of spread the word about like the benefits that retail employees already have. It looks like kind of a sloppy move, honestly, just because it was like so unappley in the design. But that was that. Last week, I believe it was last week, we had like kind of a big development that I was very surprised by, where um, Apple's VP of People and Retail, Deirdre O'Brien, sent out a video to all retail workers. This is something that happens a lot. You see Deirdre talking to employees about return to work, COVID, all sorts of things. But in this video, she very clearly said, I know that workers are talking about organizing. There's a union push. I think unionizing is a bad idea, probably, because it would get in the middle of Apple and you, and it would limit our ability to respond to your concerns, and it would slow us down. So this was the first time that we really saw Apple corporate essentially saying, we don't think you should unionize. The thing that strikes me about that document and the talking points about slowing down and all this stuff, it's all the same. Like, every company says the same things is is there do you buy like union busting for dummies like how do why is it always the same i mean there's a limited number of law firms that like tend to work with really really big companies to push back at union efforts and apple hired littler mendelson which is the law firm that was working with starbucks and that worked with mcdonald's to kind of try and quash the union effort so partly it's just that they literally do have like very similar talking points because they're working with the same people saying like this is how you get a union to go away. But yeah, they're not that creative um, in how it's, it doesn't, I guess I would say this, the anti-union talking points don't feel specific to Apple. They feel like what you would read at any other company, just like a general reason for not unionizing, not a reason that an Apple worker shouldn't unionize. 
that feels to me just like a huge mistake, right? You, we started this whole conversation by saying every morning they sit down and they talk about how special Apple is and they read the credo and people are emotional about working at that company and they stay there for a long time. And then when it comes to pushing back on a unionization effort, they're going to some law firm's playbook, which seems just not like anything Apple would do at any moment in time. Is there a reason for that? Are they legally required to say these things? Are they, are they boxed in in some way? Yeah, I mean, I think partly like Apple just hasn't had to deal with this in a while. There was another union effort that was starting up at a store in San Francisco a while back that didn't really go anywhere, but it's been a minute. And I would say like this union effort feels a little more formidable than ones in the past. So they don't have a team like locked and loaded and ready to like send out all of the talking points that Apple corporate has workshopped in a way that they workshop all of their other writing. I think also like you kind of touched on, there are a bunch of legal rules around like what a corporation can and cannot say. And if they say something they can't, like your benefits will be taken away if you unionize or you're not allowed to unionize or you can't meet in small groups and talk about unionizing during the workday, like the union can then file an unfair labor practice charge and try and hold you accountable. It's worth pointing out that like holding accountable is very relative here. Like there's not much that actually happens besides like maybe you have to hold a vote again or maybe you're fined a little bit. But that said, Apple doesn't want to be seen as a company that's like illegally telling workers stuff about unionizing. Yeah, it feels like Apple's brand here is not actually a credit to them. Like, Amazon seems to have no qualms about trying to crush the various union efforts. Elon Musk seems to have no qualms about paying whatever fees at Tesla and other companies that he runs when he says unions are bad. Like, he, they file the unfair labor practices, and he loses, and he pays the money, and that's the end of that, right? Like, but he still does it again, which is very on brand for Elon. In, in that case, his brand credits his strategy. Apple can't do that, it doesn't seem like. No, I would say that Apple is more committed to the brand and the like kind of value that like we're all in this together and you should really work hard for the Apple mission. Like that Apple credo and the Apple mission, I feel like is in pretty stark contrast to a company that's saying, also, we don't want you to come to the table with more power than you have right now. So like, please go away. So it wants to have the unions go away, I would say, but it wants to do it in a very quiet way, which is why the video last week was surprising. Again, it seems like one move Apple could do here is just give the workers things they're asking for, and they, they've started to do that a little bit. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we know that the company is sending out Keurig machines, like coffee machines, <laughs> to, to Apple stores that didn't already have them. That's, that's incredible. Um, yeah, which Wait, people, was this a real complaint that they, people didn't have coffee pods? No, it wasn't. It was, uh, well, actually, I don't know. No one I talked to was upset about the lack of coffee, but the um, <laughs> company took the initiative to send people the machines and stock them up with little Keurig capsules. Which people honestly were like, I mean, this is pretty dope. I'm not mad about it. But they also, <laughs> on a more serious note, they raised the starting salary from $20 an hour to $22 an hour. So it's not at $26, $28, but it's part of the way there. Is that having an effect on the sort of the union worker side? They're seeing like even a little bit of pressure is getting us things that we want. Maybe we keep the pressure up, but we don't go through this year's long process. Or is it they're trying to buy us off? We're going to keep going. I think a lot of people feel like too little, too late. Like we have been asking for this for years. $22 an hour isn't going to cut it anymore. And then there are people who have like been on the fence the entire time. This job seems totally fine to me. It's not that bad. Who I think probably will be appeased. Like the benefits that they're getting right now, even just coffee and a little more pay really could tip the scales and make them less likely to want to organize. It feels like the unionization effort inside the stores, again, is of a piece with where you see traditional unionization efforts. But there has been some talk about Apple workers themselves unionizing. There has been some alleged retaliation against Apple designers and other corporate employees unionizing. How has that played out? I think that, one, some of the key organizers were fired last year or left of their own accord. And so that effort, which really was kind of started by a desire to not return to the office, has kind of like died down a little bit. 
Honestly, what's happening at corporate is so, so early stage that I don't think that there's anything to talk about at this point. I think corporate employees are, you know, chatting with each other like they are at a lot of big tech companies, but it's not at the point where we should expect to see even a solidarity union in the immediate future, I don't think. Is anybody looking at the success rate of the Alphabet Workers Union as a tech company solidarity union and saying, that's really successful, I want one of those, or that's not so successful, we should do it the other way? Yeah, I've heard both, honestly, talking to people at Apple Corporate. I've heard people say, like, that is the route that we should go because we, too, want contractors to be part of the union. And, like, we feel like going for an NLRB vote is really, really unlikely to be successful at this company. And then you've heard people say, like, no, the Alphabet Workers Union has mainly written letters in the past year. Like, I think we should do something more substantial if Apple is ever going to take us seriously. We are seeing kind of this union effort across the industry. Apart from the Alphabet Workers Union, it it has been happening mostly in the frontline workers. Amazon warehouse workers, we've mentioned Starbucks several times, Apple store workers. It's kind of that class of employee that right feels underappreciated, taken advantage of, too little, too late, as you said. They're unionizing. How is it going to change the companies themselves, right? Is Amazon going to change in some substantial way because some of its warehouses have unionized? Would Apple change in some substantial way because its stores unionized? That is a good question. I mean, I think it really depends on how many warehouses or stores unionize. You know, if one store does it and it stays at that level, even if three stores do it, I don't know if that's enough to get Apple to like significantly change its like how it does business in this way or how it treats employees. That said, like symbolically speaking, it's certainly significant that like workers could come together and be successful. And I think with Amazon, we've seen that just that one warehouse in Staten Island has like been a big symbol of kind of like worker power across the country. Has it changed Amazon corporate in some significant way yet? No, I don't think so. But I think it can kind of be a North Star for employees who feel like they're not being treated well and do want to organize that this one place was successful. And so if more stores are going to try and go that route, I think having one that has done it is important. Which one do you think will be the first, if any? For the Apple stores? Yeah. That... I mean, right now we're just between the Maryland store and the one in New York. And between those two, I would guess Maryland. But that's just because they've been filing unfair labor practice charges. They've been, like, seemingly slightly more active in terms of, like, the legal push. But, again, it's it's early days. And I think we'll know a little more on June 15th when the votes actually start. What are the unfair labor practices they're charging? Basically, they're saying that forcing employees to listen to anti-union talking points is illegal. And this is is a significant change that this administration, this NLRB, has made recently. So historically speaking, companies could hold captive audience meetings. You saw this happen all the time with Bessemer, um, with Amazon's union push, where they can force employees to get into a room and they can talk to them about why unionizing is really bad and they shouldn't do it. And that was perfectly legal and fine. The general counsel of this NLRB, Jennifer Abruzzo, put out a memo a few months ago saying that actually captive audience meetings are illegal. Um, and she had various reasons for this, but basically just said that it went against the NLRA or National Labor Relations Act. Apple holds a daily download meeting that I talked to you about at the beginning of this podcast, where every shift starts with employees coming together. And in those meetings, managers have been sharing anti-union talking points. So the unions have been taking advantage of the fact that there's this new NLRB mandate about such meetings being illegal and saying that sharing anti-union talking points in the daily download goes against labor laws in this country. Are they winning these fights? Are they just filing them? How's it going? Eli, 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 this is going to take a very long time. You can't just file an unfair labor practice charge and then get your answer in the next week. We don't know yet. They have to investigate. There has to be a ruling. We're... Please, we're in it for the long haul. Let's skip to the end, right? What's going to happen? This movie's too long. How long is it going to take? I really don't know. I don't know if anyone knows right now. It's. Do you think that even filing it is enough to dissuade Apple? Like One of the reasons you file something like that is to just stop them from doing it again. No. Again, like the ability for the NLRB to actually hold companies accountable, even when they do something highly illegal, is so minimal in this country at this point that it's like 
Maybe Apple cares because of their reputation, but Amazon certainly doesn't. And they're going to continue doing what they were doing the whole time, which is like walking the line between what's legal and illegal in terms of what they tell employees and definitely straying over into illegal territory because the consequences just are really minimal. So what's next for these three stores? You said there's a vote on June 15th in Maryland. The New York store is ongoing. There was a vote at another store scheduled. In Atlanta, yeah, for June 2nd. And that one has been postponed. Yeah, they've withdrawn it, which I think means they can't file again for a few months, or maybe even a little longer than that. So that store basically decided that um, they didn't think they were going to be successful. If you talk to organizers there, it's because Apple was doing so many illegal things that they like were not getting the momentum that they needed. Um, and so they've put off the vote rather than go for an election, lose, and then kind of have the momentum die from the movement at large. So, yeah, June 15th, the Maryland store goes up for the vote. I don't actually know the date for the New York store, but I can look it up. But, yeah, in the next few weeks, I think we'll have a better sense of, like, what could be happening with these unions. And if the vote is successful in Maryland, then Apple will appeal and we'll be in kind of a long (laughs) process. But, you know, it'll be a step in the direction of um, actually having the first Apple union in the United States. All right, Zoe, that was amazing. You have obviously been covering the story very deeply. It's all on TheVerge.com. It seems like we're at a pretty important transition point, potentially, for a lot of these companies. Mm-hmm. But it also seems like they see, they're very motivated to make it go away. Totally, yeah. I think that there are you know situations like Starbucks where I think we are over the hump of like what's going to happen. And it's pretty clear that stores are unionizing and that workforce is going to change pretty dramatically. And then there are places like Amazon and Apple where I think it's still very much up in the air. All right, well, we'll have you on Decoder. You'll be our first three-time guest the next time around. Can't wait. Thanks again to Zoe Schiffer for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And all of you already figured this out, but if you tweet at me about the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.